It's great to be with you. What I'd like you to do is just just take a moment, and uh, I'd like you to think about your worst sin, would you? Just go ahead and do that, would you? Just for a moment, and quiet. Maybe even share it with somebody. Uh, This is my favorite sin, and uh, share that with someone next to you. Seriously, I want you to take about 60 seconds to go ahead and think about that. We don't spend uh, enough time just in silence, sometimes together, even as a campus. So I want you to think about your sin. For a moment, I would like you to pretend that you're your favorite detective, uh, whether you have one or not, uh, now decide to have a favorite. And I'd like you to try to determine what the missing element in American Christianity is. I'd like you to think and see if you can determine by these biblical clues exactly what is missing and possibly weak, not just in your Christian life, but in America's Christian experience. Here's the description. With this particular element, you're filled with the Spirit. Without it, you're in the flesh. With it, you're as godly as an elder. Without it, you're as ungodly as a fool. With it, you're in God's will. Without it, you're out of God's will. With it, you can have a handle on your weight. Without it, you may border on gluttony. With it, you're as industrious as an ant. Without it, you can be as lazy as a sluggard. With it, this particular element, sexual purity will never be a problem. Without it, you could scar your life forever. Without it, you're divided, dualistic, and schizophrenic as a Christian. But with it, you can be a whole person. With it, you worship God. Without it, your mind will wander. With it, you will have a quiet time. Without it, you'll stay in bed. With it, you will pray. Without it, you'll just imagine. With it, you will be displaying a virtue. Without it, you'll be demonstrating a vice. With it, you are called by the Bible to be blessed or happy. Without it, you're sinning. For with this particular trait, there is no middle ground. You either have it and you're blessed, and if you don't have it, you're cursed. What is it? Russ already said it, stole my introduction. Self-control. Self-control. And what I'd like to do this morning is to kind of take you through some scriptures examining self-control. I'd like to build a foundation and then build upon it some practical application for your life. And in a very real way, maybe summarize all of the master's morality into one basic topic, into one basic message. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to kind of screen through some things with me. I'll ask you at times not to look at certain scriptures, but just to let me read them to you and other times to look them up. But I just want you to recognize one fact even before we begin, and that is this, that our society exploits you. Our media, our television, our music, and every basic fundamental principle of our non-Christian secular society exploits you in the area of self-control. I mean, you've heard it. In fact, you've probably memorized the themes of so many commercials that basically make a statement against self-control that you could whip them off without me even having to share them with you. But here's a few. You deserve a break today. Do you? 
I mean, really, all the thing that we deserve is, is hell, and yet we're getting a message from our media that we deserve a break. What about let it loose tonight? That doesn't exactly demonstrate self-control. Or what about you only live once? Or even our, quote, Christian secular music, it can't be wrong because it feels so right. No self-control. No self-control. And the first question I'd like to ask, and I'd like to ask basically four questions. The first one is, what does the Bible say about self-control? What does the Bible say about self-control? Well, I'd like to just reference you to three scriptures, the first of them being Galatians 5.23, which is listing the fruit of the Spirit, and after gentleness comes self-control. Against such things there is no law in Galatians 5.23. And basically what you see here is that self-control is not only a fruit of the Spirit, but also what that means is that to really have self-control, it's got to come from God. It's got to come from God in the inner man, or for those of you of the female gender, the inner woman. It has to become an inner quality that eludes in an external lifestyle. And really, if you want to be truthful about it, fashioning one's own life in the way that God wants it to be is not at your disposal. Now, that's a heavy way of saying that you really have no control. It must come from God. And Christian, get this right before we even go on. In order for you to really have a godly lifestyle, in order for you to have any sort of impact upon the kingdom of God, in order for you to really be spirit-filled, you have got to develop the inner man. It can't be something that you put on on the outside. Every single one of these messages that you have heard on the master's morality can be put on on the outside and you can conform to all the externals. But unless it comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ and the inner man, as you begin to demonstrate the fruit of the spirit, it's not going to make any difference. It's a fruit. It comes from God. It comes from dependence. It comes from every day waking up as if you were a little child, raising your hand and reaching for God and say, Daddy, help me. Because I can't make it on my own. Self-control comes from dependency upon God. The second verse, and I want you to look at this one, is 2 Timothy 3.3. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy 3.3. It says this, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. 2 Timothy 3.3. Actually, I'm starting at verse 1. For men will be, and here's the description of our society, because this is the last days, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. What's that doing in there? Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. That ever happened to you around here? And then without what? Self-control. You see, all you have to do to, if you want to live a lifestyle that demonstrates the last times or the end times and the end times before Jesus Christ will come and judge this planet will be to live a lifestyle without self-control. It's an indication that you're in the flesh. It's an indication that you're living a lifestyle that is indicative of those who rebel against Jesus Christ. Now look with me one more passage, 2 Peter 1.6. We're going to turn around to quite a few 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 6. He's talking about some qualities that are manifested in the Christian's life. 
in 2 Peter 1.6. And he says, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. And then he goes on. Now look at verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 1. For if these qualities, and that's not in the Greek, but these refers back to all those qualities, are yours and are what? You say it. Increasing. Increasing. They will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If self-control is yours, and catch this, Christian, and increasing, something that you're getting better and better at, there is process, there is progress in your Christian life, then you can know that you're truly saved and that your work for the kingdom is acceptable. You see, you've got to progress. Now, I asked you to think about some of your favorite sins when we first began. And the question is, what kind of progress are you making in dealing with those weaknesses and those sins and those affronts to God? The question for Christian is not growing older and so you're going to grow more mature in Jesus Christ. The question is, because time can work against you, right? You know 40-year-old babies, don't you, that are Christians? The question is, what choices are you making daily in order to bring yourself in line with what God wants you to be? And what progress are you making with those areas that are holding you down, that are weights, that slow you down in your Christian race? Because he says these things need to be increasing. You know, a life without self-control is kind of like your car without brakes. Now, some of you I know, you wouldn't want to do this, but some of you probably would. Just to try an experiment to cut your brake lines and then to drive down the canyon road here and get onto the freeway. And I bet you could have a really good time. I mean, I know I could. I could get up probably in my Pinto, maybe 90 miles an hour, and then it'd explode. But, uh, I mean, you could drive. You could have a great time. And depending on the type of car that you have, you could get going real fast. You could have a lot of fun. I mean, you could approach an intersection, and just a cold sweat could break out on your face as you knew that you didn't have any brakes. And then you just challenge the intersection, and boom, you go right through. And it's like a rush of experiential joy floods your soul as you go, man, I made it. <laughs> the question is, I mean, you could really have a good time if you really got into it. Now, I know none of you probably would want to get into that. But if you chose to do that, you could really have a great time until you ran into something that wasn't going to move. And then you would erase the street with your face. That's simple. Now, the, the point being is this. You can live a life without self-control. You can have a great time. You can enjoy life. You can even have a rush of great joy. But eventually you're going to hit something that's not going to bend. And then you're going to pay the ultimate price for the life without self-control. Question number two. What does the word mean? What does the word self-control when it's listed in scripture mean? Well, basically it has three aspects to it. The first one is an inward aspect. To hold oneself in is what it means. Proverbs 25:28 talks like this. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Now, we don't quite understand that because in our society, our cities are just flat and there aren't a whole bunch of walls around it. But if you understand anything about what it was like in Israel and what it was like in the ancient Near East, all cities had walls around them. As a matter of fact, if you didn't have walls around them, there were two things that would happen. People who you didn't want to leave would leave, and people who you didn't want to come in would come in. An invading army, some other type of criminal. 
And that's what walls were for protection. And you see, he's saying that someone who has no self-control is just like that. And Christian, the point is this without self-control, anything that comes your way can wipe you out. You have no protection. Anything that comes your way, any attack of the enemy, any subtle influence that the enemy or just your own flesh would like to have enter into your life can take control. Without walls around your life, which is what self-control is. You don't have that inward aspect to hold oneself in. The second part is the outward aspect, which is found in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Don't turn there, just listen. It says, but if they do not have self-control, listen to this, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Do I hear an amen? Self-control is an inward character trait which displays itself in external or outward self-mastery over your passions, over your appetites, and your desires. It's inward. All of the master's morality starts with the inner man and the inner woman. Don't miss that. It's not a bunch of put-ons. It's a person that changes from the inside and leaks out on the outside. Letter C, its upward aspect, is that self-control keeps you in line with God's will. And we know that because one of the qualities of an elder in Titus chapter 1 is that he be self-controlled. Now, here's the third question. What does it mean to a Christian? What does it mean to a Christian that you have self-control? Basically, if you display self-control in your life, in your Christian life, then you show that you are either, one, truly saved, two, that you are maturing, and three, that you're in God's will. Now, for those of you with quick minds and those of you who are still with us this morning, it also means that without self-control as a part of your lifestyle, it may mean or will mean one of these three, that you are not truly saved, that you are not maturing, and that you are not in God's will. That's a heavy statement, but that's exactly what the Scripture teaches. And I'm asking you this morning, by the power of the Spirit, that you would examine your life to see if you are demonstrating self-control. And if not, one of those three is true. We have too many Christian Samsons today. You know what Samson was like. Samson had an incredible external strength, but an incredibly weak internal character. We have too many today, and I would believe that in a crowd like this, that there's probably many here who have an outstanding personality, an incredible an appearance. They have lots of friends, lots of Christian friends. Maybe some of you have been raised in a Christian home, but you have a weak inner character, just like Samson. You come off with the right vocabulary, the right answers in class, the right do's and don'ts, but your character on the inside, as exposed by God, is very weak. And it's given over like Samson to every appetite, every whim, every lust. You look strong, but you're very weak. And only you and only God can tell. Point number four, and this is where we'd like to camp this morning a little bit, is where is self-control needed the most? Where is self-control needed the most? Very simply, first would be the body. The body. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Yet I really believe that even though that, that is a biblical truth, that we are not to be mastered by anything, I believe that many Christians are controlled more by a chocolate sundae than they are by the Holy Spirit of God. When one says... 
that they are to be self-controlled in the area of their body, basically three things come into view. Three things come into view under the body. The first one is something that we don't talk a lot about today. And yet the Bible talks over and over and over about it. And that's the area of gluttony. Gluttony. For most Christians, alcohol really isn't much of a problem. But for many, food is. Now, we've got to be careful when you talk about gluttony. Because the stereotype glutton is not exactly what the Bible has in mind, I believe. Because even though it's true that some wear their sin externally, like they have TB, you know, twin bellies or Dunlap's disease, their belly Dunlap's over their belt. But it's also true that thin people, thin people can also be gluttonous. People who run around in the shower to get wet. You see... You guys are a little slow this morning. <laughs> you know, a person may be large, not simply because they're glutton. They may be large because their meta—you <laughs> can say that their metabolism. Yeah, <laughs> I knew that. <clears throat> it basically wears everything that they eat. Now, some of you girls who are very thin, you're saying, "Yeah, that's true of me too." I don't know. There's a very interesting thing that you need to realize is that there are thin people who are gluttonous. They just burn everything up. You see, how you tell a gluttonous person is not by what they look like, but how they respond around food. How they respond around food. You see, if you're in a restaurant talking with your friends and the food arrives, if you're the type that stops talking and starts to drool, or you get one of those glazed looks on your face, or your mouth opens and saliva jets out. Or when you full, you cram some more in just because you feel the need to do so. Or you feel that a normal meal is something on the likes of Thanksgiving dinner. Or dessert is never an option. Or you live for 8 a.m., noon, and 5.30 or you think about food even when you're full, then you may be a glutton. The Bible has some very harsh things to say about gluttony. And I try to make light of it because it's so heavy and people think and get very self-conscious in that area. But again, I want to say that I don't believe that it's shown many times in external appearance. I mean, a thin person can be just as gluttonous and you never know it unless you ate next to him when your hand disappears. The second area that the body is concerned about scripturally is laziness. Now, I know that probably all of you in just that moment that I said that word said, I'm not lazy, I'm busy. I mean, you can't be at the master's college and not be busy. But I don't believe that it's laziness really reflects on the area of busyness. Laziness really comes into view in those times of your lives that no one is around and that you don't have to be doing something. Really, your truest character in your Christian life is displayed in the secret moments, in the quiet moments, when you're by yourself or with your family. You know, your secret life that no one sees except for maybe your family and no one really listens or believes them because they're not saved or they're out of it or they're too old. See, the Christian who is lazy is the one who doesn't live his faith at home, is the one who doesn't live his faith at work where other Christians are not around, 
or live his faith at school. It's the one who won't get out of bed to talk to his Lord. It's the one who watches TV, goes out with friends, has lots of fun, goes to church activities or school activities, crams in homework, and when in a crisis tells God that he's too busy to spend time with him. That's laziness, spiritual laziness. The third area that reflects the body is, of course, the area of sex. Our world has gone crazy over it. Unfortunately, Christians have followed suit. We desperately need self-control in the area of our sexual passions. And I'm sure that you've already talked about this in your series. But God's standard for the single man and the single woman in the area of sexual relationships, whether involving the mind or the body, is total 100% abstinence. Let me say that again. God's standard for you is total 100% abstinence. God's view of sex basically falls into three simple points. Now, you've gotten a lot of stuff, and I just want to summarize it into three simple things. Are you ready? Let your mind be in here. Number one, sex is for the man and for the woman. It takes care of a lot of problems today. Number two, sex is for marriage. And number three, sex in marriage is for the enjoyment of the partner. That's pretty simple. That's God's standard. Anything short of that is not his will. It's very simple. And even more simple are God's exhortations to the unmarried person or the college person concerning sex. And though there is some debate on how this passage is interpreted, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Pretty simple, huh? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That says it all. We need to have that kind of self-control that Job displayed in Job 31.1 when he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? The word gaze there means to ponder or turn your attention to. And though Job could look at a lovely lady, his self-control kept him from pondering his beauty in his heart. Now that's self-control. And you can do that if you walk in dependence upon Jesus Christ daily the power of his spirit but not only does the body need self-control but let's change gears a little bit and take a look at the mind now again i know that you've discussed this a little bit but self-discipline or self-control with the body is good but without the mind it's useless it's useless i mean you can get your body in gear but if your mind's going crazy it's not going to do you any good it's just like the monk who was totally tormented by thoughts of lust because he lived in a society with women and so he decided to just kind of hide himself away. And what he found was is that it was worse there because his mind ravaged him. Yeah, he was away. He had separated his body from the temptation, but his mind was still fully in gear. We need to, as believers, take every thought captive. Second Corinthians 10.5 tells us to take every thought captive. I mean, what would happen if we really began to work at this? If we began to memorize scripture that really talked about the things that our minds really were tormented over and struggled with and went off and sinned in. I mean, think about it, Christian. I don't know if you struggle with this or this sounds like relief to you, but you could actually worship in church without thinking about the day ahead. You could actually sit in chapel if you're self-controlled over your thoughts and not have to worry about what's next. You could pray without your mind wandering. You struggle with that? I do. Pray without your mind wandering. If you begin to work at that area. You could truly go through a day and practice the presence of Jesus Christ. You want to be a godly man and a godly woman? 
you've got to begin to exercise self-control over your thoughts. You could look at a good-looking guy or a good-looking girl and not lust. You could fellowship with your brothers and sisters without thinking that they're evaluating their motives. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds good to me. But it doesn't come without a price. To control or captivate your thoughts and put them in submission to Jesus Christ, you've got to do two things. Two things. Number one, you've got to dump the garbage out. You've got to stop treating your mind like a trash can. You've got to stop putting trashy TV shows, movies of naked people and gross violence and language into your mind because it's going to affect you. I hate even saying it because it's so cliche now, but garbage in, garbage out. It's true. It is so true. And yet we refuse to face up to that. We think that somehow, some way, I can screen through the trash and not let it affect me. But it does. You know, it's such a joke for some of you guys to think that you can look at naked ladies on the screen and not sin. That's just a lie right out of the pit. It is. And for you gals to read romantic novels and think that it's not going to affect you and your perception, it's a joke. Number two, to help you control your thoughts and your mind is that not only stop putting junk into your brain, but also put good stuff in and begin to choose to think rightly. Interesting thing about our thoughts is that it's really what you choose to think you'll think. And if you think Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, you will then live those attributes. It's that simple. You know, you in this room concerning the people who are sitting around you and your friendships either are one or two things. You're either a vulture or you're a hummingbird. When a vulture flies over a desert, it will find a carcass. You know why? Because that's what it's looking for. A hummingbird will fly over a desert and it will find a flower. Why? Because that's what it's looking for. Christian, whatever you look for in other people, you will find. If you're looking for carcasses to spread gossip or to rip on people negatively or to let your thoughts go on and on and on in sinful areas, you will do it because you have chosen to do so. But if you begin to choose to see people for their potential and what God is working in their life, you will then reflect that with your thoughts and your mind and your actions. Well, not only is it needed in the body and in the mind, it's also needed in the area of your emotions. Your emotions. Self-control is needed in your emotions, such as dealing with bitterness and jealousy. You know, they're not to be a part of a Christian's emotions, and yet there's so much bitterness and resentment over other people we're jealous of other people's giftedness or their popularity or their ministry or their looks. We're resentment over their success or their lack of attention that they give us or their inconsiderate things that they say. That's not to be a part of the Christian's life. And self-control demands that we deal with these emotions. You know, one area that really wipes out Christians is the area of their future mate. One person wrote this, and I want to share it with you because it really describes some of our failings in the area of thinking about our future mate. This is um, an individual who wrote The Ideal Wife, What Every Man Expects. This is his description. And then he describes what he gets. I'll get to that in just a minute. The Ideal Wife, What Every Man Expects, always beautiful and cheerful, could have married movie stars but wanted only you. Hair that never needs curlers or beauty shops. 
Beauty that won't run in a rainstorm, never sick, just allergic to jewelry and fur coats. Insists that moving furniture by herself is good for her figure. Expert in cooking, cleaning house, fixing the car or TV, painting the house and keeping quiet. Favorite hobbies. I didn't write this, by the way. Favorite hobby, hobbies are mowing the lawn and shoveling snow. She hates charge cards. Her favorite expression is, what can I do for you, dear? <laughs> Thinks that you have Einstein's brain but looks like Mr. America. Wishes, you that you, <laughs> wishes that you would go out with the boys so she could get some sewing done. And loves you because you're so sexy. This is what he gets. She speaks up to 140 words a minute with gusts up to 180. <laughs> she once was a model for a totem pole. <clears throat> She's a light eater. As soon as it gets light, she starts eating. <laughs> Where there's smoke, there she is, cooking. <laughs> she lets you know that you only have two faults. Everything you say, everything you do. No matter what she does with it, her hair looks like an explosion in a steel wool factory. <laughs> and if you get lost... Open your wallet, she'll find you. <laughs> the ideal husband, what every woman expects. He will be a brilliant conversationalist, a very sensitive man, kind and understanding, truly loving, a very hard-working man, a man who helps around the house by washing dishes, vacuuming the floors, and taking care of the yard, someone who helps his wife raise the children, a man of emotional and physical strength, a man who is smart as Einstein but looks like Robert Redford. What she gets... He always takes her to the best restaurants. Someday he may even take her inside. <laughs> he doesn't have any ulcers. He just gives them. Anytime he has an idea in his head, he has the whole thing in a nutshell. <laughs> He's a well-known miracle worker. It's a miracle when he works. He supports his wife in the manner in which he's accustomed. He's letting her keep her job. He's such a bore that he even bores you to death when he gives you a compliment. And he has occasional flashes of silence that make his conversation brilliant. Now, all that to say this, that unless you have given this particular area over to the Lord and you are exercising self-control and allowing God to sovereignly bring that person into your life as a friendship, and then as more of a friendship, and then confirming that friendship, that that is a friendship that would be out of his will unless you pursued marriage, then you may be out of his will in the area of self-control. You may be letting your thoughts run wild with you, feeling sorry for yourself, trying to manipulate your relationships so that you find a man or you find a woman. Self-control is needed over your emotions so that God is honored and that you marry the right individual. It's also needed in the area of your tongue, the area of your tongue. And I don't want to say anything about it, and just that the fact that when you do gossip, when you do rip and put down, when you do insult your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are basically manifesting no self-control, and you're also wounding, and you're also passing on someone else's sin. That's like saying, give me your garbage, give me your fallenness, give me your rebellion against Jesus Christ, and let me pass it along. Well, how does it work? How does self-control work? Basically, it forces you to do things. It compels you. 
like having a quiet time, it will force you. And if you're really into self-control and you really want to do it, you'll do everything that you possibly can, like setting your alarm a half an hour earlier. And then when you do, that doesn't work, getting one with a snooze alarm. And then when that doesn't work, getting one with a loud radio. Then when that doesn't work, set the alarm across the room. And when that doesn't work, you'll set the alarm across the room on your Bible. When that one doesn't work, you'll, you'll set it on your Bible with an open with a note in it saying that if you don't have a quiet time, you're going to be anathema that day. Then you'll set it in your bathroom with a verse of toothpaste written on the mirror saying that you're going to be judged unless you have your quiet time. And then you may even call up a friend and say, you've got to call me 45 minutes early so that I will have a quiet time. But self-control will force you to do things. And you will choose to be willing to allow the Spirit to do whatever He's got to do so you get it done. Next thing that self-control will do is to help you to be consistent. I mean, just imagine for a moment two runners who have exercised equally, trained equally, run equally, been aggressive, built up their running skills equally. And then on the day of the race, one of them gets a craving for watermelon with ragu sauce poured all over it. And so they eat it and then they run their race. It's obvious who's going to win. And an individual or a Christian without self-control constantly compromises their race. And they will lose and they will fall. And the third thing that self-control does is it cancels. It cancels. Such as when I used to drive to that other Christian university every day, I used to go by a pastry shop and I used to tell myself I would not turn in to that pastry shop. I would make covenants. I would sing songs about not turning into the pastry shop. And then as I was driving by the pastry shop, I would turn in. And what self-control meant was that I drove, drove a whole block around that pick and building so I wouldn't turn in. That's what it meant. And I know it's stupid. And you're saying, you should be able to control yourself. You know, some of you have weaknesses where you can't control yourself. And the only way to deal with it is to drive a block spiritually around it and avoid it. Just like I asked you at the very beginning, I asked you to think about the sins that are really tripping you up. The way to figure out where self-control is needed the most is to take a good look at yourself in the spiritual mirror and just to really take a good, hard look and to really be grossed out. Just like if you were overweight and you allowed yourself a good, long look at yourself in the mirror, after a while you'd be going, yuck, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And what you need to do as a Christian is take a good, hard look at where you're at spiritually and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And then go after it. Attack it. Be aggressive. Seek to memorize scripture that address those issues. Get accountable with someone who's going to slap you around a little bit in love. And deal with it. In the 14th century, there was a gentleman named Reynold III and he was a duke in what is now Belgium. His nickname was Crassus, which was a Latin nickname, which meant fat. And that's exactly what Reynold was. He was extremely fat. After a violent quarrel with his brother, his younger brother Edward, Edward led a successful revolution and revolt and overthrew Reynold. But he didn't kill him. What he did is he built a building around him. And that building had a normal size, two normal size windows. 
and a little bit less than normal sized door. And that was Reynolds prison. You see, Reynold, all he had to do to leave that room was to lose weight. Every single one of you in this room could have left that room, but Reynold could not. And all Reynold had to do was to discipline himself to lose the weight and he could walk right through the door because none of them are barred and none of them were locked. But because of his weakness and his brother knew it so well, every day Edward would send three deliciously prepared meals to Reynold. And instead of losing weight, he gained weight. For ten years, he stayed until Edward died in battle and then they freed him. And because his health was so poor, he died a year later. And I share that with you for this simple point. What's the difference between you in any area that you are not self-controlled in and you know that you're not self-controlled in and yet you do nothing about it and you keep feeding it and it becomes a bigger and bigger problem? May I suggest that there's no difference between you and Reynold III, spiritually speaking, from God's perspective. Let's pray. Our God, we're so grateful that you have not left us alone to fight the spiritual battles that are before us. Father, you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us a whole new nature. And Father, help us to realize that it's not just let go and let God but you demand from us 100% aggressive area effort in the area of our Christianity. Help us to not leave this room the same individual. Move us to become more of what you want us to be so that we can say that we truly worshipped you today. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we love very much.